sing, oh, sing of my Redeemer. That is beautiful. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 12. As we come to those last verses of this particular chapter and continue in our study of this, read the closing episodes of the public ministry of Jesus. As we said last week, everything from chapter 13 on, he's dealing with just his disciples. He's not speaking to the multitudes. He's not speaking to the crowds. He's not, he's not calling them anymore to repentance and belief in him. He has finished that and now is ready to say, this is where I'm going. He's now, starting with verse 1 of chapter 13, he is firmly set toward Calvary. And everything after that, Everything in 13 through the end of this book is, is dealing with either getting ready for, moving to Calvary, Calvary itself, or the resurrection and, and, and departure of our Lord from the earth. So it's a, it's a, it's a difficult time, I, I, for the disciples at least. I titled the sermon this morning, uh, Jesus' Apologetic of His Ministry, or Apologetic of His Message. And uh, I, I like that word apologetics. We're going to be dealing with that in Sunday school uh, over the next quarter, looking at objections to Christianity and how to answer those objections. That's the study of Christian apologetics. We're going to have a Bible conference in, uh, no, in October with Dr. Bruce Ware, uh, dealing with some of the major things and have the opportunity to have one of the uh, top Baptist theologians in the world here with us to discuss that in a conference on Sunday through Wednesday, skipping Tuesday. You'll hear more about that, but uh, from some scheduling conflicts, he's going to have to skip Tuesday night. We won't have a service that night or session that night, and we'll come back Wednesday, but you'll hear all about that. But it's important that we think about this idea of apologetics, and, and that's kind of what Jesus is doing in this chapter. Now, I'll never forget my first church out of seminary, and I was sitting in a class, and I started talking about the need to study Christian apologetics, that I wanted to study that, I wanted to teach that, I wanted to have part of that. And one old deacon, and he wasn't that old, he was a lot younger than I am right now, but one deacon, long-time deacon, looked at me and just very solemnly and very seriously and very sternly said, well, I don't believe we Christians have anything we need to apologize for. And neither do I. But that's not what I'm talking about. Apologetics comes from the word that literally means to make a defense or to give a reason. Peter told Christians, I mentioned this in my Grace Notes article this week, Christians, uh, Paul, uh, Peter told those early Christians, be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks or anyone who challenges you as to why your hope is in Jesus Christ and why you place your faith in him. Be, be, really, be, be really ready to tell them why that is the case, to make a defense. Well, Jesus in these verses, and it is Jesus speaking in these last verses of John's 12th chapter, is really giving an apologetic for where he came from, where his message came from, and why he speaks the way that he does. Uh, it's really kind of in a contrast to the verses just prior to this, where, where Jesus is, John tells us that Jesus went away and hid himself from all these people. That they had been there, they'd been listening, they had failed to believe. He said even when they saw the miracles, even when they saw everything that Jesus did, they still refused to believe in him. You know, that's got to be one of the saddest sections in the Gospel of John. 
It's got to be one of the saddest stories that's told that these people, unlike us, who were able to see the miracles, who were able to hear the teachings from the very mouth of Jesus, but they saw those miracles being performed. They saw those signs, and yet even in seeing them, they refused to believe. They would not believe that this was the one who, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ. It must have been one of the saddest episodes that John ever had record in all of his gospel. It's amazing how the scripture does that. The Bible never glosses over. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, in a few weeks in our psalm readings during the, uh, the hymn time, the singing time, we will come to Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is David's great confession and repentance at being guilty of sin with Bathsheba. And after Nathan the prophet has pointed it out to him, he confesses that, he repents of that, and he pens that beautiful Psalm 51. Wouldn't it have been a lot easier if God had just kind of glossed over David? Wouldn't it have been easier if, if, if you know, David certainly was not proud of his episode, if he had just said, you know, I had a mere indiscretion. We won't go into what it was, but everything's okay now, and just moved on. The Bible never glosses over anything. It doesn't gloss over the sins of the saints, and it doesn't gloss over the rejection of the people, sad as it may be. I love how John Piper put it one time in a conference I was in with him. He said, there's reasons for the sad things. There's reason for the ugly things. There's reasons for the, for the painful things being shared in Scripture, and they always have a positive purpose. He said, they tell us sad things so that in the end, it will make us glad. So the sad things, the dark things of the Bible are spoken for the sake of light. The ugly things are spoken for the sake of beauty. The painful things are spoken for the sake of comfort. The sorrowful things are spoken for the sake of joy. And conflict is pictured for the sake, for the sake of peace. That's an, that's an interesting analysis that Piper gives to why we see sad, ugly, discouraging things within the Scripture. But we realize this, and John, Jesus will tell us this over the 15th chapter of John, that everything he's done, everything he said has been for one thing, and that is that his joy might be in us and that our joy might be made full. Even these sad episodes of looking out and seeing that the Jewish nation basically rejected their Messiah is written so that we might see joy and gladness when we recognize the work of Christ in our life on a daily experience. In John 17, Jesus is going to pray for the disciples with him and say, I'm not just praying for them, I'm also praying for those who will believe because of their word. And one of the things he's going to pray for is, Father, make their joy complete. So that's what the whole purpose of these sad things, these bad things are about. Now, in John chapter 12, verse 44, John says this, And Jesus cried out and said, Now, John doesn't make it real clear whether this was said before he withdrew himself or after he withdrew himself, he came out of the, the withdrawal to say this one last thing to the multitudes that were standing there, to those who were standing around, or whether he's saying this just to the disciples in this withdrawal situation. But he does say it with a passion. The word there that he uses for, and Jesus cried out, is the same word he used when he said he went to the, to the tomb of Lazarus and cried out, Lazarus, come forth. So it's bold, it's loud, it's, it's affirming, it's, it's declarative declaratory, so that those who hear might understand this is being said with an important passion. 
This is what it says. He who believes in me, uh, believes in me, does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me, sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. It's an interesting statement. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. For I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And this is the word of our Lord. Jesus is contrasting here his purpose, his calling, with what his opponents said about him. His opponents wanted to say, well, he's a great man. He's done some good things. He's a good teacher. People are listening to him. There's no doubt about that. But he is not. He is not the Messiah. He is not the one who is being sent from God. He is not the one who is coming to bring about redemption of his people. He just can't be because he doesn't meet up to our expectations. But what Jesus is saying and what John is saying is that you must understand that whatever his opponents may say about him, there can be no uncertainty about who he is. That's the apologetic character of this passage Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to understand several things. One being that I came with a mission, I came with a purpose, I came from someone, and none of this is of my own initiative. The, the religious leaders wanted to paint Jesus as somebody who just kind of came out of darkness, who, who just kind of came out of the darkness into the city and began to do these things because he wanted attention and he wanted to be thought of highly. Many of them thought about, I'm sure, John the Baptist who had been out in the wilderness eating uh, you know, locusts and honey for all those years, and then he came in dressed in a very rugged, ragged garb and started proclaiming repentance toward God and a baptism of repentance. And they said, surely, well, surely he's like John was. He was off doing his own thing somewhere, and he got some kind of a messianic complex and decided that I'll just come on the scene and I'll say some things and I'll draw a, uh, a crowd around me. I'll pull a gathering, and, and people will believe that I really am something more than what I am. Jesus wants to understand that that cannot be anything further from the truth. Jesus wants us to understand that his authority, his mission, his words are not words that he just conjured up as some man, as a human being. But these are words that have come from the Father. Jesus is saying, I want you to understand that, that his, my witness has a greater witness and my words have a greater source than any human being. Now, he's beginning to deal with the whole idea here that he'll deal with more in John 14. The Father and I are one. The whole concept of the Trinitarian nature of God and the Trinitarian nature of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are about to be thrust upon us in a glorious way, in a way that it has not been clearly declared up until now. It's been spoken of, it's been implied, 
It's been stated very shroudedly, if you will, but it's about to come full bore and full blown as Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. He's going to say, this is who I am. This is who the Father is. This is who the Spirit is. And the Father, the Spirit, and I are one. And we're together. There's a unity within that triunity. And we'll talk about that in depth when we get to chapter 4 because it's one of the most liberating things for believers in the 21st century to understand and to experience and to see and to know in their daily walk and daily life. But I want you to see six things here that Jesus makes clear in his apologetic about his message and about his ministry. Six very brief things, then we'll be done. First of all, Jesus wants us to understand in verse 44 and 49 that he has been sent by the Father and he fully obeys the Father. He has been sent by God himself and he obeys everything that the Father says. The specific idea resisted is that his coming took place at his own initiative based on his own authority and is directed toward his own glory. He said, I want you to understand none of that is true. The Jews may say that, they may say that his, he is only coming in his own accord and doing his own thing, but Jesus sets his own subjection and the command of his Father as the sole motive of his coming and the salvation of the world as the end to that motive. It doesn't come with some complex. It doesn't come with some idea that he's greater than he is. He came in order to show the Father. So he's been sent by the Father, verse 44. He obeys the Father fully, verse 49. It is not Jesus, but the Father himself who defines the purpose of Jesus' mission and the content of his message. See that. Understand that. There's a greater thing at work here than just one man walking the face of the earth because Jesus is greater than just a man. He is a man, but he is a God-man. He is the one who is the revelation of the Father in its fullest, and we'll see that in these verses. Jesus says, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Now, that may sound like a little bit of double talk to you, but he's doing this for the sake of those Jewish leaders who have said, listen, we believe in God, we believe in Yahweh, we believe in Jehovah, he's the one who is important, and Jesus says, yes, but if you believe in me, you believe in him. And, if you, and conversely, if you don't believe in me, you don't believe in him, because he is the one who has sent me. So Jesus says, I want you to see, I've been sent by the Father, and I fully obey the Father. Secondly, Jesus is showing that he is uniquely one with the Father. Now, as I said, we'll see this more clearly when we get to John chapter 14, when Jesus kind of unfolds and unpacks all of that for us. But Jesus says here, I want you to understand that to see and to hear him is to see and to hear the Father. Verse 45, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. Verse 49, for I did not speak in my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as what to say and what to speak. And verse 50, I know his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus is saying basically, whoever has seen my miracles, whoever has seen the miracles that I perform, sees the glory of him who sent me. It's not for my glory, it's for the glory of God. 
Everything Jesus did was set apart for the glory of God. Every miracle he did was to point to the Father and say what a marvelous God we serve. That's why our lives are patterned like that and that everything we do are not to be for our own glory, not for our own benefit, not for the glory of Grace Baptist Church, but for the glory of him who came into the world, sent by the Father, and is exalted as Redeemer and King forever and ever. We're to worship him, glorify him. That was what his purpose was. We must understand that in everything he's saying in this passage, Jesus is showing us that he is the perfect revealer of the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. It's a bold statement for Jesus to make. He's been making that clearly throughout his entire ministry in one way or another. He's been saying, listen, I'm not here to do my own will. I'm here to do the will of him who sent me. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the perfect revealer of the God that we have never seen. He's the incarnation. He's God in the flesh. He's God with a face and with hands and with feet. And he's revealing the Father in his totality. The third thing he wants us to see clearly in this apologetic of his ministry is that he is the light of the world. And to come to to him and believe in him is to receive the light of salvation. Again, the verse is 46. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. First part of 47. If anyone hears my sayings and and does not keep them, then I don't judge them. They're judged by the words that I speak. And in 50, he talks about it again. My words are for eternal life. The commandment of God is for eternal life. But if you come to him, believe in him, you receive the light of salvation. I had Brother Todd read that passage this morning from, from 1 John, John's first epistle, where he says, listen, if we walk in the light, we, we know him, And to know him is to walk in the light. John sort of took this passage and broke it down maybe a little more clearly for us. And I just want you to see that again. Let me read it so I don't accidentally misquote some of it. But in there he said, you know, what we've seen from the beginning, what we heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is just simply saying, we're not talking to you about something we've only heard about. We're talking to you about a person that we have seen and heard and touched and, and loved and eaten with and, and been with our whole, his whole life on this earth or his whole ministry on this earth. But he gets down to verse 5 and he said, And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John says, I want you to understand, and Jesus says in this passage, I want you to understand that those who come to me as the light of the world, those who believe in me, will not remain in darkness. The darkness of captivity to sin, the darkness of slavery to sin, those who have come to him have been transferred out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of his marvelous light to walk in the light. Not walk perfectly, not walk without stumbling, not walk without still struggling some in this world. As I said this past week in our Bible study on Wednesday night, God lets us struggle in this world, so we'll look to him more. Do you realize that? 
God, God lets us kind of veer onto the edge of the light, if you will, sometimes, and, and, and taste again what it was like to be in darkness sometimes, just so we'll cry out and say, Lord, I can't do this. I need you. But Jesus said, if you come to me and believe in me, you will not remain in darkness. Those who were in the crowds were in darkness, especially those religious leaders that just refused to hear him. John told us back in the early part of this chapter that part of the reason they didn't believe was to fulfill the prophecy from Isaiah. But they weren't forced, you know, they weren't forced not to believe. They were just left in what they wanted. They got what they wanted. Somebody says, well, how can God send anybody to hell? You know, how can God send anybody into punishment? Uh, you know, let me just make this clear. God gives people what they want. And those who are casting out are darkness are there because that's their desire. They don't want the light. They want the darkness. They love the darkness. Refuse to listen to the light. And Jesus makes that clear. The fourth thing Jesus makes clear is in verse 46 and 48 that to reject Jesus means choosing to stay in darkness and to face future judgment. Jesus said, I didn't come into the world. He said this back in John chapter 3, you remember? In talking to Nicodemus. I didn't come to the world to judge the world. I came that the world might be saved through me. I, I didn't come, to, I, I didn't come to, to say, you know, I'm going to cast a judgment upon you. I just came to speak the truth. I just came to declare the truth of God. I came to speak the words that God gave me to speak. And that's why I'm here. But if you reject that truth, then you stay in darkness and you choose clearly to face a future judgment. Judged by the words that he spoke. Listen, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, and for someone to say, well, I don't want to come that way. You know, I just, I just want to come my own way. I, I want to love God the way I want to love God. I want to, I want to come through another religious experience. I want to come through another religion. You know, surely God would, would understand that. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, there's no equivocation in that. And, and the words will be the judgment of those who say, I don't want that. I don't want that. And if someone tells you, well, whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you believe in God or not, as long as you follow your conscience, you'll be okay. See that as a false teacher, a false prophet. Because the words of Jesus will come back to judge every single one who says, I don't want that. He said, I offered you eternal life. I offered, I, I came and I, I, I offered, and, and you just love the darkness more than you love the light. The fifth thing, quickly, that Jesus makes clear here, and that is, and I've already alluded to this, G, the, the judgment will be the, by the words Jesus spoke because they are the Father's very words. 48 through 50 makes that clear. He's speaking nothing but the truth of the Father. And in 6, and finally, there's the converse. 
that he makes there in, in verse 50. To, to reject his words brings judgment. But conversely, to follow Jesus' words, to believe his words, to accept his words, brings eternal life. Jesus says, I know that his, that is the Father's commandment, is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. Listen, the commitment that we call people to, to believe in Jesus, to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, don't you understand, that is a call of a com- to a commitment that is ultimate and has eternal consequences. It's not just a matter of, oh, well, I just, I'll live for myself now and, and not worry about the future. Jesus said, don't you understand this? The words from God, the words of the gospel have absolute eternal consequences. And whether you believe or don't believe will determine those consequences. It's not an invitation to believe so that you might be saved just from some distant judgment. But it's to believe because judgment is now. And salvation begins now. It's not something you hope will be able to be negotiated when you die are negotiated when you, you know, finally see him face to face in his coming that you might say, well, I'm a pretty good negotiator. I'll, I'll argue my case then. Salvation is for now. Judgment begins now with what you do with the words of Jesus. Now, here's the thing he's wanting you to see here. There is no other option for right relationship with God. There is no negotiation. There is no saying, well, maybe I can do it my own way, and, and you know, as long as I'm a good person, then all that works itself out. No. It's not like the, our friends who are serving in a Muslim country who, who said that they had their Muslim friend in for, for dinner one night and, and trying to share the gospel with her. And she said, well, you know, I, I, know, that, I know that God is weighing the scales, and if my good deeds tilt toward over my bad deeds, and then I'll be received into glory, into paradise, into heaven, whatever you want to call it. But if my bad deeds tilt the scales in that way, then I won't. I won't be. But, but I do know, I, I do believe, she said, that if my bad deeds outweigh my good deeds by just a little bit, then I'll be allowed to go to, I'll be made to go to hell for a short time so the fire can burn off my sin. I can pay for those bad deeds that just barely outweighed the good deeds, and then I'll be received into heaven. You know, I, I read that in the newsletter from my friends, and I thought, <laughs> I know a lot of people that aren't Muslim that believe that way. I know a lot of Americans who have bought into an Americanized Christianity that is not the gospel that believe that way. Well, you know, I can just kind of do my own thing as long as I'm sure that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'm all right. She said, here's the apologetic for my message. The words I speak are words from the Father. They're not just words I made up. What I'm speaking, I'm speaking in commandment of the Father. That means they are absolute, complete, without any equivocation, the truth. And anything that claims to be true that contradicts those 
is by very definition a lie. See, God's not a relativist. God, God doesn't say, well, you know, it's maybe true for you, but not true for me. God doesn't say, get your own truth and live by it and you'll be okay. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man gets to the Father except by me, through his life, through his truth, through his only way. Boy, that sounds so narrow. That sounds so restricted. But you know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, the, the the broad way leads to destruction, the narrow way leads to life. Narrow is the gate. And there's a lot that don't find it because they want to do it their own way. They want to have it their own way. I, I know a lot of Baptists that way. So I'm, just, I'm just believing that I'm a good enough person. Then you're believing a lie. I just want you to know that. I, I don't say that because... It makes me happy to say that. I say that only because it's the truth. And you know, I sometimes think as we look at our world around us and think about people that will come to our block party this afternoon and, and, and are we going to really understand that they're outside of Christ? They need Christ or else their life is a life of judgment? Sometimes I think we fail to weep over the conditions of those around us. I love what Richard Baxter said. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan, in his book, The Reformed Pastor, which by his term reform there means the revived pastor, the, the renewed pastor. Baxter wrote these words. I'm going to read them in the Old English from about the 1500s, so just bear with me, but listen carefully. Baxter says, I marvel how I can preach slightly and coldly, how I can let men be alone in their sins, and that I do not go to them and beseech them or beg them for the Lord's sake to repent, however they take it, and whatever pains or trouble it should cost me. I seldom come out of the pulpit, but my conscience smiteth me that I have been no more serious and fervent. It accuses me should I not weep over such a people, and should not your, my tears interrupt my words? Should not I cry aloud and show them their transgressions, and entreat and beseech them as for life and death? Baxter saying basically what Jesus said in these Seven verses. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of, of grave seriousness. What you do with the words of Jesus, what you do with the person of Jesus, is a matter of life and death. And not just life and death here, but life and death for all eternity. What you do with Jesus, what you say about Jesus, what you believe about Jesus and the words he spoke will determine judgment in your life. Whether you've been judged already by the righteousness of Christ or whether you will be judged by your own sin, by your own lack of righteousness, by your own conscience. 
which is not the same as being judged by the righteousness of Christ alone. You know, Baxter's words pierced my heart when I read them again this past week. I love that book. But those words pierced my own heart again. Do I not often let my words keep going when there ought to be tears? For those under my hearing who really need to see the grace of the Lord, really need to hear carefully His words and His truth. Is there not a time when I fail to call for the Lord's sake people to repentance? I love what he says, however they take it, whatever pains or trouble it should cost me, you know, you may look at a friend or a relative or a neighbor and say, well, <laughs> you know, if I tell them about Christ, they may think I'm some kind of fanatic. If I call them to repentance for their sin, they might think I'm a holier than thou. And don't be a holier than thou. Baxter says, you know, the, the words of the Lord are words of life. And if rejected, they're words of darkness lead to darkness. Do you love your neighbor? Do you love your friend? Do you love your relative enough to say, listen, this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternal significance, eternal consequences. Or you say, you know, I'd rather them like me in this life and come to realize their needs for this life and the life after. Let's pray together. Father, those last words that Jesus spoke, evidently publicly, are at least relating to those public expressions, were sobering words. His apologetic of his message and his ministry are sobering words. He says there's bad news. There's sad news. The bad news is everyone who rejects will walk in darkness, not just now, but for eternity. And Lord, I'm convinced that in our day and time, we need to know, believe, and even speak the bad news before people are ready to hear the good news. Because sometimes in speaking the good news, without the bad news, we kind of give the picture of just a happy God who's forgiving and no, no standards, no holiness, sort of a universalist, smiling, happy God 
who just is happy to have people stomp on his truth and reject his truth and say it really doesn't matter. It really does matter. Father, the words we're about to enter into with Jesus in 13, chapter 13 on are intimate words to believers. They're encouraging, they're, they're edifying, they're strengthening for believers. But Lord, this morning I want to pray for anyone, man, woman, young person in this building that does not know you. Pray, Father, your Holy Spirit will move in their life right now and show them their sin, show them their darkness, be a searchlight in their soul, and, Lord, draw them to Christ. Show them their need for the Savior. Father, do your work. with the words of Jesus in their lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.